You're listening to the Hard Men Podcast, reclaiming biblical masculinity in a world of solids. Welcome to the Hard Men Podcast. I am your host, Eric Kahn. It's a joy and pleasure to have you with me today. For this episode, we're going to be talking about what I think is one of the most important issues facing the church today, and that is the spread of a virus. No, not COVID, but a doctrine. It's a virus doctrine, a teaching called pietism. I think it's one of the biggest issues facing the church. We're going to continue to unpack it in this episode. I want to talk about what pietism is, first of all. I want to talk about why it's a distortion of biblical teaching, and then I want to talk about what effect it has had on the church and our understanding of Christianity in today's culture. Now, second, what I want to do, I want to contrast this counterfeit pietism with the real thing, the real McCoy, and that is biblical piety. How do they differ? Why is this important? We're going to unpack this in today's episode. Now, if you've listened to the show before, you remember in a previous episode that I had Dr. Andrew Sandlin on the show to talk about pietism. The episode was titled, Why Pietism is Destroying America. I would definitely recommend that if you haven't, check that out. There's a lot of good background, great discussion. Uh, Dr. Andrew Sandlin has some really amazing points. By the way, you can follow him on Twitter. That's at Doc Sandlin on Twitter, at Doc, D-O-C-S-A-N-D-L-I-N on Twitter. Definitely recommend that follow. You can also find him on Facebook, and you can find him on his website as well. We'll provide links uh, to the past show. You can look that stuff up. But again, really good content there. There's going to be some overlap with that episode And this one, but not a whole lot. We're going to dig a bit deeper into what pietism is. And in particular, we're going to contrast it with what is genuine piety. What is biblical piety? What's the difference? I'd also encourage you to check out a couple of articles we'll provide in the show notes. Uh, Some by Andrew Sandlin. The other one is a personal favorite of mine, Dr. Joe Boot from the Ezra Institute. Both guys have talked a lot about pietism. They've talked about How it has impacted the church today, Dr. Joe Boot, churchianity versus Christianity, right? How pietism tends to root everything in the church. Gospel-centered theology is all about you, the church, and missions. They don't know how to talk about being a king in the other realms, culture, entertainment, media. They don't know how to talk about that because everything is about the church and missions, right? John Piper, go, send, or disobey with missions, right? Missions is such a central thing, and of course it's a good thing, but in churchianity, it's the only thing. So really good articles. I encourage you again to check them out. We'll include links in the show notes to a couple of those, and again, check those guys' work out. Ezra Institute, really great podcast. Check that out as well. So today's show, we're going to begin with what is pietism? What is pietism? Historically, pietism is defined this way, and I'm going to be quoting now from Andrew Sandlin. This is pietism. Pietism is the 17th century Protestant and mostly Lutheran movement, led first by Philip Jacob Spainer and then Hermann Frank at the University of Hall. It's reacting against the widespread Orthodox scholasticism, and it insists on personal zeal, sanctification, and piety as central criteria for authentic Christianity. Now, in the theological development of the West, pietism rescued Protestantism from a dead orthodoxy, but in its privatized and anti-dogmatic emphases, it also paved the way for 19th century romantic liberalism. Marginalizing doctrine, as it turns out, is not an effective technique for guarding against dead orthodoxy. Biblical orthodoxy wedded to devotion is the unbreakable barrier to dead scholastic orthodoxy. Pietism, by contrast, and this is really important, pietism, by contrast, links passionate personal devotion 
to an omission of concern for God's kingdom in the world, notably as it extends beyond the individual family and church. Pietism was mistaken, therefore, not so much in what it affirmed, namely, a warm personal zeal for God, as in what it omitted or marginalized, namely, a rigorous theology and commitment to Christian culture. So that's the end of the Andrew Sandlin quote. So I think it's important at this point to point out a couple of really important things about the definition of pietism. Number one, it tends to emphasize personal experience and emotion over against robustly sound doctrine, right? It's all about you and Jesus and your quiet times and your devotional times. It's it's less so about sound doctrine, particularly cultural theology, as we're as we're gonna see. So number two, it limits, pietism limits the definition of piety to the individual, right? It's all about you as an individual. What are your experiences? What was that amazing worship experience that you had in church? Number three, pietism rejects a rigorous commitment to cultural theology, right? There's no sense in which the pietist is like, hey, man, let's take dominion of the whole earth. Let's build cultural institutions. Let's do the work of cultural architecture, rebuilding in the ruins, right? Instead, what are they doing? Well, we shouldn't even think about that. Christians, good Christians don't think about politics. Good Christians aren't Republicans. No, but apparently they're Democrats. So number four, pietism is inherently Gnostic. Okay, so it's not concerned with the physical realm, the physical body, physical manifestation of the kingdom here in this place, in this earth, in this time. It doesn't matter where you live. doesn't matter who your family is. Don't worry about that. Just you and Jesus on a mountaintop, right? That's pietism. And we're going to unpack how it shows up in our culture. So while pietism has taken on different shapes and sizes across the decades, these main themes remain, particularly in American evangelicalism. So today, for example, many prominent Christians are quick to reject the idea of Christianity as a religion in favor of Christianity as a relationship. That's gay, and I hate it. Right, but this is where the church has gone. It's all about you and a relationship with Jesus, not that dirty word religion. Well, the problem is religion means to bind, and really relationship is a pretty cheap word at describing what it means to be a Christian, what it means to participate in the liturgy and life of the body of Christ, what it means to come to the communion table, what it means to be baptized in the name of Jesus, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Is it just a relationship? No, it's not. It's a religion. And the old word is better. And I like it. So instead of talking about the fear of God or Christian duty and responsibility, right, that pietism doesn't want to talk about that, right? Duty to God, duty to men, the focus is almost entirely on experiences, on emotions, on my personal walk with Jesus on my quiet times, and a hyper-individualistic conception of the faith. We talk about devotions, not duties, because devotions, well, to our ears, trained by this zeitgeist, this current zeitgeist of churchianity, right? To our ears, devotions feels warm and spiritual, while duties makes us feel cold and robotic. We've been trained to think this way. It's the same with relationship versus religion. The church has trained this bias into us. Since this brand of churchianity, which again, a word I'm stealing from Dr. Joe Boot, this brand of churchianity ignores the outward-facing societal implications of a godly life and commitment to culture building. These Christian leaders and churchmen of today are more or less allergic to any discussion of the faith that involves political or, or cultural theory, right? We've all been told in the young, restless, and reform movement, we don't do politics. Like, that's somehow just beneath us. We we just talk about Jesus, and we talk about the doctrine of salvation, soteriology. That's the only thing that we talk about. When they do interact, these pietists, with the political, cultural sphere, it's usually a ham-fisted mishmash of feelings and misapplied Bible verses. Right? You've all heard this. 
Love your neighbor equals get the shot, mask up, do whatever the state says. And there was a time when we could poke the finger at people like Joel Osteen because he's a giant target and he's like a big plushy bear that you just, you want to punch right in the face. But what's the problem today? It's not the Joel Osteens that are the big concern. It's the John Pipers. It's the Mark Devers. It's the Ligon Duncan. Guys that we used to trust are now crying in their tears over CRT and, oh, I'm too white. Oh, I feel so bad for my whiteness. We ought to repent because whiteness is not a sin, okay? But this is where pietism has led us. It's just these mishmash takes, terrible, horrible takes, you know, love your neighbor, okay? Well, where in scripture does love your neighbor equate to get the shot? It doesn't. That's legalism, right? But this is the result of pietism. Christianity has been downgraded. It's been declawed. It's been neutered. It is inept at bringing the kingdom to bear in real time in space under the reign and rule of the pietists. It lacks any potency in shaping culture. By the way, this is why I think so many people have been over the last decade or so turned on by people like Doug Wilson and theonomy and post-mill theology because we grew up with this declawed cat of Christianity that had nothing to say from the law of God to the culture. And so many of us said, it's weak, it's empty, it's nothing. And then what happens is you start reading the reformers, you start reading your church fathers, and you start to realize Samuel Rutherford had something to say to the tyranny of a godless state, right? John Knox had something to say to it. There is such a thing as the doctrine of the lesser magistrates. The reformers, quote-unquote, of today, they don't want to talk about that. They just want to talk about you and sweet Jesus time in the mornings, right? But again, so many of us, this empty. That is not being a cultural prophet. That's not what we need in this moment, right? The, the church is getting killed, and these guys are like, yeah, let it happen. It's, it's for the better. Christians are made to be losers, right? This churchianity, this pietism, does not know how to bring the kingdom to bear in real time and space. It lacks, again, it lacks the potency that is needed to shape and fuel culture. This type of ideology is alive and well in American mainline evangelicalism. Look around you. Look at the Gospel Coalition. Again, founded Piper Keller. This thing is horrible. Chris Wiley aptly refers, C.R. Wiley, to this phenomenon. What is it called? It's called heart religion. That's all that we're left of left with in American churchianity. Part of the reason that this is the case, part of the reason this pietistic emphasis exists is because a pagan culture is less offended when you speak of your personal subjective experience than when you make truth claims that are universally binding on all men everywhere. So it's one thing to go into a coffee shop in Boulder and say, hey man, I me and Jesus had this sweet, quiet time, and people be like, hey, man, if you did that, that's cool. But, bro, I met Buddha, too. Right? That's not offensive. But when you go into the coffee shop or you go anywhere and you say, listen, you're living in sin. This is godless. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus rules and reigns over you. Well, suddenly now people are a touch offended. Right? The pagan cultural elites are perfectly fine if Jesus lives in your heart. They do not care if Jesus lives in your heart, just so long as he doesn't show up in the public sphere or in public school or in public policy. Many big evil elites know this, and they're all too happy to play to the beat of this heart religion drum. Right? They're perfectly happy to say, look, just let us have Jesus in the corner, right? This James Davison Hunter, Tim Keller, big evil playbook to change the world. What's it all about? We don't want to take dominion. No, we just want to come to the table and we want to practice faithful presence, whatever that means, right? Let's just live in this pluralism. But what we need to do is go back and read our Bibles. We need to treat the culture today like the conquest of the promised land. We are going to sow salt in the fields of evolutionary theory. We're going to sow salt in the fields of feminist ideology and socialism, and we're going to tear down the powers of this age with the truth of God's word. Think about what Paul said. Right? Was Paul like, you know, I, I gently engage with other arguments. 
No, he said, we punish every disobedience. We disarm the rulers of the age, right? We're fighting a spiritual warfare through the truth that we proclaim, right? Probably today, I would say, probably the single greatest champion of pietism in our day is John Piper. I think it's probably like no question. He just sort of epitomizes this ideology. When it comes to Calvinist doctrine of soteriology, doctrine of salvation, Piper, I think this is when he does his best work. And I don't think that's all that surprising because many of the soteriological salvation elements of the gospel do indeed, you know, they include, they talk about an individual's personal new birth, conversion, sanctification, of course, the religious affections, right? But the question we have to ask is, is that everything? Right? Is that the only thing? The, the obvious answer we'll get to is no. But think about the book, Desiring God. I read that book. It, it changed my life because it made me think about you know, the, the, the religious affection side of Christianity. I'd gone to church, but, but I had to ask myself for the first time, like, you know, is this truth transforming me? Okay. So it's good in that sense. But in another sense, Desiring God really is a sort of opus magnum of pietism. Piper puts such a tremendous weight on the emotional experience of conversion and the emotional experience of the Christian life. It's all about rummaging around in your own heart pretty much forever, right? It makes sense. Like Piper said, he was a student of Jonathan Edwards. He loved Jonathan Edwards. So much of that book, you go back and you read the religious affections. Desiring God is basically a lot of that book distilled, right? It's all about this focus. On, on emotions, on your personal individual response uh, to God, to the Word. Again, it can really lead to morbid introspection. I mean, think about Jonathan Edwards is a really good example of how this can go wrong, all this introspection into the heart of man, right? Jonathan Edwards, you, you read the story in his biography, and he's like this amazing man. I mean, you know, his intellect, his, his preaching, his pastoral ministry. He's like in his 20s, 25. And his father, Timothy, is like, I don't think you're saved. Because, you, you know, you just don't... They, the, the people in that era, you know, late Puritans, I guess, Congregationalists, they had come up with a list of like, what is real conversion? And, yeah, I can't really find all the points in the Bible, but they had, they had their checklist of like, what are the experiences? And to... To Timothy, Jonathan didn't meet all the experiences. And, you know, some of it was like, I know Jonathan isn't saved. He had joy on a Sunday. I, I, I mean, I'm serious. Like, Jonathan frolicked. He was 12 years old, and he frolicked with his friends on the way to church. Pagan. Absolute pagan. Right? This is where a lot of this pietistic introspection can take you. And it's not all good. Right? And that's, we have to, we have to face that. And we have to face what it's come to in America. This focus... On emotion is not always good, and it, it, it's not all that shocking when you understand the context. These people were responding to dead orthodoxy. I get that. But notice what else Piper does in Desiring God. What else does he do? He slams anything that has to do with a Christian sense of duty. Doing anything Christianly out of a sense of duty. Duty is like a four-letter word to John Piper. Philosophers like Nietzsche, they, they use that word. It's horrible. Duty? Gross. But, but here's the reality is we're going to see duty is an important part of piety. Duty is an important part of the Christian life, right? These guys had a, a morbid introspection, an obsession with personal feelings and experiences. In my own life, this was really not helpful. Every time you go to worship, you're like, well, how do I feel? What's, what's going on in my heart as I'm singing this worship song? Is it enough? Do I really love God? What are my emotions like? Man, you're worshiping yourself. You're a navel gazer. That's not true worship of the living God. That's not what piety is. It's what pietism is, though. It's, it's dangerous for a number of reasons we're going to continue to unpack. It's also worth noting that when Piper and others refer to the gospel, right? there's this whole movement, the gospel-centered movement. They generally mean soteriology only, right? They're, that's all they mean by the gospel, doctrine of salvation. This is why, as Andrew Sandlin pointed out in our previous conversation, the whole gospel-centered movement is consistently preaching a truncated gospel. Here's the reality. The gospel is about more than personal salvation. 
Yes, that's one element, but there's more to it. It's also about Christ crucified, taking his throne and ruling and reigning and dominion over the whole earth and ruling and reigning and establishing dominion through his people in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's about how God is reordering the cosmos through households, through your household. As a wise father, you take dominion there. God is reordering the cosmos according to his perfect plan and purpose. It is about making disciples of the nations. It's about restoring a cursed earth. It's about a new heavens and a new earth. It's about building Christian culture, and it's about so much more. When we say the gospel, and if all we mean is the doctrine of salvation, we are preaching a truncated gospel, right? There's more to the gospel than just you and your relationship with Jesus. That is so American, individualistic, self-centered view of what the Christian life is, right? And this is why we need to regain a full-orbed view of, of godly piety is because there's more to it than simply you and your relationship with Jesus, right? So likewise, notice what happens when Piper, this is the whole gospel-centered stuff. This is where it takes you. Notice what happens when Piper starts to deal with issues that fall within the realm of society, politics, culture, and are outside the immediate realm of subjective elements in salvation. What happens? When it comes to armed defense in the home, John Piper said he'd rather the intruder kill his wife than him protect her. Now, first of all, this is like antinomianism to the core, because if you read the law of God, there's actually things that God says about personal defense, and it's a requirement. Read the Reformers. Read the Westminster Confession of Faith. If you allow someone in your care to be murdered in that fashion, you are violating the command, thou shalt not murder. You are violating that command, right? This is how bad John Piper gets in the realm of society, politics, and culture. He's a pietist. The only thing he knows how to talk about is you and your relationship with Jesus. How were the Jesus feels this morning? That's all he can talk to you about. And that's why, as John Piper has tried to play like the cultural prophet, like he's trying to do a little Doug Wilson thing, he is horrible. I mean, it's, it's a train wreck. It's a train wreck with nuclear bombs on board and worse. Right? What happens when he starts to talk about Donald Trump in the election? Another train wreck is what happens. That's what. A train wreck, and every car on the train is a dumpster that's on fire with nuclear weapons, right? He couldn't stomach voting for Donald Trump because the Donald, guys, I hate to break this to you, the Donald was a serial mean tweeter. And for a pietist, that is, you just can't go there, man. You can, do, you can kill babies like Joe Biden or Hillary Clinton, but if you're mean, it's like, that's got to be, to the pietists, I think meanness has got to be the sin against the Holy Spirit. Right? He's not nice. The Donald was not nice. And so what does John Piper do? He passive-aggressively endorses Biden. That is so beta. It is so beta, so spineless. Just come out and say it, man. But he won't do it. So he passive-aggressively, mealy mouth, all the emotions, emotions plus feelings plus Strange platitudes of scripture, vote for Biden, blah, blah, blah. Right? By the way, Joe Biden's moral failures are equal, if not greater, to Donald Trump, right? Nobody acknowledges that, but yeah, but Joe's not a mean tweeter, guys. Joe doesn't violate the 11th commandment of thou shalt be nice. Okay. Did, and also, did you watch any of the videos? In Michigan plant, you know, you're we following this. Uh, Jerry Wayne, when Joe Biden told him he's going to take him out and kick his ass. Well, that's not very nice. You, you wonder what lens and what standard these, the pietists are viewing all the political garbage. But, you know, put in this category, David French, Russell Moore, they're all in this category too. They're horrible, right? And I think a lot of it is at the core is pietism and also a love for the left. That's another episode. Again, back to John Piper. What happens when he steps outside the realm of society, politics, and culture? What does he do? What is his most recent debacle? A bigger train with more dumpsters on fire, with more nuclear fallout. He heavily pushes the vaccine. What a train wreck of an article. He heavily pushes the vaccine because, well, love your neighbor plus warm feelings equals you. Whatever the government tells you, they would never lie to you. 
Like that is literally the level of argumentation in that article. And again, it all goes back to pietism. They, from the beginning, they've said, we're not going to engage in cultural theology. We're not going to engage in political theology. So they, they've ignored like 80 to 90% of re- especially reformed history and tradition. People actually did a lot of work in the past on these things. You can read Lex Rex from Samuel, Samuel Rutherford. Um, it, it, you can read Glenn Sunshine, Canon Press, get the book. It's great. Slaying Leviathan. There's a rich history. And they just totally ignore it because we're pietists. We're Gnostics. We don't care about this life. That's not spiritual to care about politics. I, it gets to the point where I literally, I listen to this stuff and I'm like, it's not even Christian. That is not Christianity. That's where pietism has taken us. So I think it's important that we understand the lie that it is. So I want to summarize as we close this point. Down to summarize, pietism is a distorted view of Christianity that limits the faith to a personal, subjective, individualistic experience, and it neglects the familial, cultural, and societal elements of genuine piety, a piety that looks toward the culture like Nehemiah and says, we need to build something here, right? Pietism tends to dismiss earthly endeavors or physical realities as insignificant, right? Gnosticism. So next, next part of the podcast, I want to talk about why is it a distortion of biblical teaching? So I'll dig into this a little bit deeper in just a moment when I unpack what genuine piety is. But for now, I want to offer a brief summary. Why is this pietism? Why is it a distortion? Well, the fundamental reason pietism is a distortion is because genuine piety is about far more than personal religious experience. Biblically, piety is about duty to God and others. It carries a strong element of family, culture, and society responsibilities or duties. As we're going to see, pietism is simply an unbiblical distortion, a counterfeit to true godliness and piety. And it's kind of interesting. Once you see this, it's actually really easy to see it, particularly in the writings of Paul, right? When you examine Paul's teaching in 1 Timothy 5, for example, biblical piety is directly and immediately displayed in relation to household duties and relationships, right? Paul says, you know, you need to live with piety and it's all about your relationship to other people in the household. The pious man gets a job. He keeps his kids fed. He clothes his kids, Paul tells us. And if he doesn't, he's worse than an unbeliever. Think about that statement. We've heard it a lot of times, but think about what Paul's saying. If you don't take care of your own family, even the pagans do that. What kind of cretin are you? Notice how the passage is not about tantric quiet times or waterfalls of emotion during a musical performance or your quiet time, right? It's, it's not about your personal relationship with Jesus. That's not what the piety that Paul's talking about is about. Now, obviously, other passages do talk about relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm not denying that that's part of piety, but if, if that's all piety is, you get this snowflake mush. Notice in the passage how the fear of God is supposed to show up in outward-facing duties, and that that, your outward-facing duties, that and not your emotional state is the litmus test of true faith. Do you notice that? It's not about your, your emotional, how, how moved were you during the service? How deeply moved were you during your prayer time? Did you weep joy, tears? Did you? No, that's not what Paul says. He says, are you faithful in carrying out your duties as a pious person? That's how you know you love God. That's how you know you really fear God, because you're carrying out these duties. Duties! Secondarily, pietism is a distortion because it's a fruit tree that produces self-obsessed, emotionally fragile, yes, some might call it gay, shallow proselytes who are quite often intentional about not advancing the kingdom in this world. They're intentional about this. They're navel gazers. They're not culture builders. They're not manly men. They're not kingdom makers. They, they shrink back at words like conquest and dominion. Well, that's so mean, though. Simply put, pietism has produced enough bad fruit that we should stop watering or eating from or even looking at that tree. Cut it down, burn it down, throw it away. 
right? As Doug Wilson once said, and I think this summarizes the problem pretty well, Christians of this pietistic ilk are trained to rummage around in their own hearts, and when they're done with that, they're trained to rummage around in the hearts of others. They're obsessed with emotional experiences tied to conversion, right? What they're not equipped or interested in doing is building, extending, and strengthening the kind of Christian culture that will transform the cosmos, you know, like what we're called to do in the book of Ephesians. They're not about building institutions anymore that will stand. In fact, they're about telling us to open the doors so people can come in and destroy them, right? They're not about poking the idols of the culture in both eyes. They're about, in many cases, putting those idols up, critical race theory. I mean, they're supporting this crap in the churches, right? Other activities reserved for manly, holy troublemakers, well, the pietist just has no room for that. So what are the effects? This is the next, next little segment here. What are the effects of pietism on church and culture? I'm going to go through a few points here. First, number one, pietism has left the church open to heresy and false teachers. So think about it. I, it's no accident that critical race theory, wokeness, feminism, socialism, intersectionality, have you noticed they've all hit peak form at exactly the same moment that pietism had its heyday, right? Piper, Keller, they built the Gospel Coalition, Justin Taylor, Crossway, all these guys are in like peak position to have an impact on the culture, but they all mostly all happen to be of some shade of pietism, some worse than others. The pietists have their heyday of cultural influence, and what happens? Critical race theory takes over. Wokeness takes over. Feminism takes over. Socialism. Intersectionality. Why? Because these guys welcomed it into the church. They're supposed to be the shepherds, the protectors, the church, the buttress and pillar of truth. These guys are supposed to be the watchmen. They're supposed to be the guardians. And what do they say? Come on in, boys. Right? Bring that critical race theory into the church. That's what these dudes did. Right? I wouldn't necessarily charge Piper, Keller, Dever, or the like with total softness on all doctrinal issues. Right? There was a time where we respected them. They were good on things like the five solas, for example. Some of the basics of Reformed theology. They were, they were decent at that. I have to admit that. But look at what's happened to them on cultural and political issues. They are so downy soft. I think the downy soft bear would be like, mm, that's kind of gay, guys. I think the downy soft bear would say that. Right? We have this rich history of cultural, political theology, and these guys just totally ignore it. I think because they find it distasteful and crass. Look, they're not dumb enough to know it doesn't exist. I, I, they can't be. You know, think about Mark Dever. Mark Dever is an apt student, nine marks. Mark Dever. Right? He's an apt student of Richard Sibbs. I think he did his doctrinal thesis on it. I have the book. Great book. Got me going on Richard Sibbs. Puritanism. Wonderful stuff. But have they not read Samuel Rutherford and Lex Rex? As a result, many of these teachers, rather than offer robust critiques of false teaching, right, all this stuff that was going on in the church, Romans 13, vaccine mandates, these should have been the guys who had read Lex Rex, right? They had read this. They knew about the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. They should have been up on this. And what happened? They were the ones pushing it. These were the guys pushing the whole Romans 13, you have to obey every authority no matter what. It's kind of interesting, though, if you do read Lex Rex, the Roman Catholics were beating Rutherford and other, others over the head with, guess what? Romans 13. Right? So congratulations to all the pietists of today. You're on the same track as the Roman Catholic Church. Way to go. Right? The great irony is that these teachers, pietistic teachers, keep demanding that we, quote, not get political. Like, I was raised on that. Don't be political. Yet they have openly, repeatedly touted hyper-leftist policies. Right? What they mean when they say don't get political is don't be conservative. That's what they mean today. Right? They're pushing policies of vaccine mandates. They're pushing open borders. They're pushing anti-nationalism. Right? Ray Ortland the other day. You know, the, the world is burning down under the weight of critical race theory and 
all this nonsense, what they've all supported. And what does Ray Ortland do? By the way, Russ Moore goes to his church. All the Baptists can freak out about that. I thought you were a Baptist, Russ. Apparently not. Apparently that wasn't the only thing that you were, uh, that you were lying about, right? But what, is, what does Ray Ortland do? In the midst of everything that's going on in the culture, he goes, you know what the real problem is today? The real problem is nationalism. Like, they, they can't stop beating that drum. They just can't do it. It's the only drum they know how to beat. It's dead. It's tired. Nobody, what are you talking about? Right? As we'll see, piety is about loving your people. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. In fact, we're, I would even say it's a requirement of genuine piety that you love your family, you love your household, your community, your people. Requirement of piety. Everybody knew this in the history of the world for a long time. Right, but what do these guys do? They push leftist agendas, all while telling us don't get political, and then they hate on conservatives. Conservatives whose views are much more closely, though not perfectly, it's not a one-to-one, I'm not saying it's a one-to-one, but conservatives' views are much more closely aligned with the Christian faith and morality than is the Democrat party of death. Hello? This is obvious. This is not rocket science. Again, Mark Dever, well, there's good reasons why black Christians would vote Democrat. Why? Mark, because they like killing babies? <laughs> I mean, come on. These guys have endorsed Democrats and they've bludgeoned the Orange Man, who is so, so bad. So bad. Orange Man bad. So think about this for a minute. Think about it. The pietist game plan from the beginning, before the ball was ever snapped, was to encourage Christians to politely decline to engage in politics or cultural issues, with some weird exceptions, like abortion. But somehow. But even now, we, you know, whatever, abortion, vote Democrat, who cares? Like, that issue kind of went away. It really did. But anyway, it's like showing up to a football game and refusing to make physical contact. That's what they're asking you to do. Everybody gets a participation trophy. That's the kind of thing that is happening right now and has been happening in evangelicalism because of these leaders. This is a great strategy if you like to lose. And they've even encouraged us to be losers on the Gospel Coalition. But behind the scenes, what are these guys doing? Behind the scenes, what are your evangelical leaders doing? What's Russ Moore doing? Pushing left, hard left, trying to drive the, the boat off the cliff. Can you drive boats off the cliff? That's what Russ is trying to do, right? What they were really doing this whole time was running one of those classic Lucy, Charlie Brown trick play things, right? They were actually hellbent on advancing the leftist cause the whole time. They were engaging in a demoralization campaign in our midst to get all the men to stop fighting, right? Don't, don't fight. Just lay down and take this. Well, guess what? It didn't work. Guess what? People stood up. People are standing up in the SBC. People are standing up at John MacArthur's church, right? People are standing up in a hundred churches across America with pastors and faithful men whose names you will never know, right? People are standing up. So here's my hunch. This is what I think. James Jordan, Biblical Horizons, this is an old, old document, but he had a document talking about Baptist culture and, and, and political influence and all that stuff through like the 70s and 80s. This is my hunch. I think a lot of these guys, John Piper, that whole generation, they're all about the same age. I think they watched their fathers and the men around them, the moral majority, the Bible Belt, and they saw the cultural hatred that it produced among the liberal elites. And I think a lot of these men have and are reviling their own fathers. That's what I think. They went the route of James Davis and Hunter, Tim Keller, all that nonsense about practicing faithful presence, right? We talked about that. Practice faithful presence in the midst of a paganistic pluralism. That'll be fine. I think many of these guys were academic types. But look at them. Many of these guys were academic types who wanted peer approval from the cultural upper crust. You know, you think about somebody like Mark Dever. Where does he minister? Oh, Washington, D.C. What kind of people does he hang out with on a daily basis? Oh, interesting. I wonder what they think about Christianity. Oh, interesting. Yeah, very interesting. Oh, say, pray tell, where, where does Tim Keller do ministry? Oh, New York. Okay, oh, that's interesting. And, and what kind of people are those? Oh, blue-collar working Americans who have conservative values? Oh, no, no, okay. Yeah, just checking. Right? These guys, I, I just gotta be. Like, they're just so obsessed with the approval of the left. I think many of these guys, again, they're academics. 
you know, they're trying to write for the big papers. They want the approval of these people. Many of them hired PR gurus. They hired marketing experts, Ed Stetzer. They rebranded their churches. They're going after demographic studies now. They hated dominion taking and its barbaric post-colonial aftertaste because it didn't play well in the focus groups. It's all bad. It's all bad. So that was number one. That was point number one, long point number one. Pietism left the church open to heresy and false teachers. They've taken over in large part. Second, pietism is for losers. Okay, let's be real here. Pietism is for losers. Most of the reformers were not nice guys, right? To, To many of us today, like if you actually read, I don't think a lot of people do. I really don't. If you actually read Luther and read Calvin, right? I have a a set of Luther's sermons. You can find tons of Luther's writings. Calvin, they're online. You can read them for free. Read Calvin's commentaries. Like even me, even the hard man host. I would read Calvin. I'd be like, whoa, are you allowed to say that from the pulpit though? Like there's so many times where these guys are harsh compared to our politically correct culture today. Right? Since COVID began, what we've seen is an apocalypse. We've seen an apocalypse. The Greek word is unveiling. Right? Many of the pastors who should be fighting for their churches and the congregations that they have the care over, they've willingly shut down. They have willingly embraced government tyranny. They're encouraging others to live in that tyranny. They're encouraging others to be oppressed. And they are actively advancing the cause of leftists and people who are like it's the opposite of justice, right? People who are supporting just wicked perversion. And, and, and your pastors and your evangelical leaders have gone along with it. They've pushed it. It's not just that they refuse to fight. It's that they've taken up arms for the other side. Remind me, what is the penalty for treason? I'm just wondering, just curious. Pietism can only thrive in a world of luxury and ease. Here's the other thing. It's going to lose. Like, we're headed for times of hardship, affliction, persecution. Right? We ought to be able to read the weather when there's a giant storm cloud coming, and it looks dark and gray, and it's rolling over you. You ought to know there's a storm coming, right? Jesus told us this. Historically, we have persecution coming. Right? Pietism can only succeed in the context of opulence. It cannot succeed in the context of persecution or intense hardship. Look, the Gospel Coalition's even said it. I've mentioned this before. They have said it. Look, it's good for Christians to be losers. It's good for Christians to be in a position where they're getting their butts kicked and they're just continually on the retreat culturally. Right? They want, pietism wants you to be a loser. And I just asked the men in the room, ask the women in the room, do you want to be a loser? If you want to be a loser, Pietism is for you, and you can go be on that team. I'm not picking you for my kickball team. You go be on the loser team. I'm going to be on the winning team. So third, pietism is inherently gay. It's gay. It's really quite obvious, but I will say it simply, simply because many refuse to. A good number of the prominent pastors today are somewhere smack dab in the spectrum of gay. And no, I'm not talking about full-blown sodomy. Although, let's be real, there are definitely those two, right? The PCA has a gay pastor openly. Oh, I'm sorry, he's not practicing, but he's openly gay. Okay, yeah. Let me know how that one works out, PCA, okay? Uh, Jonathan Merritt, same deal. Why is nobody dealing with this? This dude is gay. He's openly gay. And... uh you know, on Twitter, claiming to do pastoral work, all that stuff. So we definitely have those guys. But I think we have a lot more that are in the Malico soft, effeminate sense, right? They're gay, right? The skinny jeans, gay. Excessive focus on personal feelings, that's gay, guys. Refusal to defend your own people when the enemy is at the door, super duper gay. Okay, just bear with me for a minute on the Piper thing. Follow the logic here. If he won't protect his wife, what makes you think he would protect the church? Is that the dude you want running your church? I know he's not running it anymore, but he's still trying to act as like cultural prophet. Right? It's gay. 
making war on masculine virtue, plain spokenness, competency, physical prowess, while elevating the Harry Styles, dress-wearing soft boys, all of those guys to hero status? Yeah, that's hyper-gay. Hyper-hyper-gay. Right? Promoting all the niceness. You know, men need not apply to the church these days. It's gay. Vilifying masculine sins. Right? Or masculine-leaning sins. But dismissing feminine-leaning sins. Also gay. I think this is one of the big reasons that a lot of the pietists didn't like Donald Trump. Donald Trump sinned, but his sins are on the spectrum of masculine, right? Kind of being an a-hole, kind of being overly direct-spoken, womanizer. He likes women. I mean, in our culture, that's, it's, it's a sin, but it's on the spectrum of being a man. You know, you go to the other one, you got pedophilia on Biden, sniffing girls, little girls. I mean, what are the sins on the spectrum of in a lot of the case? Uh, uh, I think a much grosser perversion from the facts that we know, right? But that's acceptable because he's nice, right? We don't tolerate in the church, we don't tolerate masculinity. Uh, Again, all of it is gay, and this is where pietism has left us. Fourth, pietism is destroying households, churches, and society. Again, points to the Piper logic about self-defense. Listen, man, if you're, if you're a man and you're leading a church of men and you're telling everybody in your church, this is what I want you to be like. I want you to be like the kind of pastor. I want you to be the kind of pastor, the kind of father that would allow his family to get killed by an intruder. Well, first of all, I would leave that church tomorrow. Today, if I could, I would leave that church immediately. You want your men to be like that? You want your men to be gay? You want your men to be completely cowardice? Weak men who are easy to conquer, that's what pietism leads to. They promote it. Like it's the Christian doormat weakness, loser snowflake mentality. They want it because they want you to be conquered. That, that's all I can figure, right? They're celebrating weakness. Paul said he was weak. Brian brought this up the other week. Paul said he was weak. Why? So he could be strong. Not weakness for the sake of weakness. That's how they read it, right? What has happened with pietism is it produced men who are obsessed with their own emotional experiences. It's promoted emotional fragility, soft-shell crab men, snowflakes. Like, I talk to these dudes all the time, and that's what they are, right? That is not a winning formula. So if you want to see more households, churches, and society destroyed by all means, promote pietism. Okay, so now we come to the point in the show where it's like, okay, now we get to talk about the positive. (laughs) We are all the way in and we're talking about godly piety now. Thanks for bearing with me. Where I first came across the discussion about piety, godly piety, was Chris Wiley's book, The Household and the War for the Cosmos. And I definitely would recommend that you check out that book. It is published by Canon Press. Love me some Canon Press. Love me some CR or Chris Wiley. Wonderful man, wonderful pastor, huge blessing to the church, so many deep insights, can't say enough good things about him, check out his book, and uh, I think you'll be blessed by it. So first of all, as he points out in the book, I'm getting a lot of the material from here, the word piety has a long, rich history. Its meaning can be traced back to both scripture and the rich cultural heritage of the Greeks and their language, of course the language in which the New Testament was written. So Bernard Cox is commenting, excuse me, Bernard Knox is commenting on the Aeneid. Some poetry here. He's commenting on the Aeneid. And he said this about the word pius and pietus, right? So piety, but these are the Greek words. This is what he had to say about them. The word pius does indeed refer like its English derivative to devotion and duty to the divine. And in the Aeneid, he is always mindful, Aeneas is, of the gods. He is constant in prayer and thanksgiving and dutiful in sacrifice. But, right, here's the but. But the words pius and pietas have in Latin a wider meaning. Perhaps the best English equivalent is something like dutiful, mindful of one's duty, not only to the gods, but also to one's family and one's country. So pietism just got exploded. It just got blown up. It's false. 
right? What's interesting is we find virtually the same meaning in the New Testament for the English word that we get in the translations for piety and um, the Greek word in, in, in at least the case of 1 Timothy 5.4 is eusebio. For example, right, 1 Timothy 5.4 I just mentioned, Paul says that, quote, if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety, right, there's your word, piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents. The Greek word here is eusebio, which means dutiful, pious, showing piety towards or paying homage. In other words, piety is about devotion to God that manifests itself in duty-bound relations to our household. I love it. This is obvious given the context. 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 16 is all about how members of households should take care of each other. What Paul has in mind is clearly a fear of God that manifests in duty toward household, right? And this is the basis of a healthy society and eventually a right ordering of the cosmos. This is how dominion is taken. Again, anyone who fails to provide for his own household, what does Paul say? Worse than an unbeliever. That's in verse 8. Right? The man who lives only for himself, he's worse than a pagan. Right? The dude who goes clubbing until he's 50 and never has kids, never gets a wife, never takes care of anyone else. It's all about him. Worse than a pagan. What about the, what about the parents? Maybe they go to church. What about the parents who are like, look, man, you're 18. You're out of my house. I got nothing to do with you. Man, I just, I'm going to vacation until I die. Right? You live only for yourself. What does Paul say? Worse than pagan. Why? Because even pagans knew that right order of devotion and duty to household people and country. And so Chris Wiley brings out this perfect picture of Aeneas in, in the Aeneid. He brings out this perfect picture of Aeneas. And what is he doing? He's carrying his father on his back, leading his son by the hand after the destruction of Troy. This is Pietas, right? Aeneas is, it's, it, you see the multi-generational picture. This was on Roman coins. This was a picture of Pietas. This is what it means to be a godly man in that context, right? And I, I believe what Paul's saying in First Timothy is, very similar. Obviously, we're worshiping the one true and living God, but it, it's, it carries the same weight, right? It's a care for the generations. It's a care for your father and for your son. That's what a godly man is like. This is the manliest, most heroic picture imaginable of what true piety is, right? Piety, in turn, is concerned with fathers and sons. It's concerned with intergenerational legacies, Piety is about passing on your life story through your offspring so that they want to live for what you live for, right? Piety is, yes, it's about duty to your household that far surpasses mere feelings, emotions, and personal experiences. What's funny to me, if you, if you take like the desiring God type piety and you try to like superimpose it on Aeneas, it's like the gayest thing ever. Like Aeneas would be like, get away from me. What? I got work to do, man. I got a child to lead and raise and a father to carry on my back. That's what genuine piety is supposed to be. As Chris Wiley says, quote, the thing about Pietas that you can't miss is its social character. It does not isolate you. Instead, it binds you to everything else. Wow, I love that quote. Pietas, piety, it binds you to everything else. I would add, as Wiley does elsewhere, that again, true piety is essentially manly and heroic. This is what the church is missing. This is why you don't have men in your church, because you portray a vision of pious living that's just gay and effeminate. Right? You sing these Chris Tomlin songs about Jesus is my girlfriend. Right? And you tell people that what does it really mean to be godly? It means to come to church and talk in little foo-foo Christian man language. You know what I'm talking about. You have to act like a woman. You have to be hyper-emotional. We have to eat bacon and talk about our feelings. That's not what piety is. It's manly. It's heroic. It's gladly assuming responsibility. It's taking the generations. What a glorious picture. Taking the generations on your back as you lead future generations into manhood. 
so that you can build culture and civilization like Aeneas. Man, that's beautiful. Of course, Wiley will point out that's exactly a, a, a parallel of what Abraham is doing, right? Abraham is doing the same thing, believing in the promises, circumcising his children, taking on the marks of the covenant, raising his sons in the fear of the Lord, raising his people, protecting his, his relations, going to war for them, right? This is pietas. This is piety. So I want to summarize it this way. Genuine piety is a devotion and duty to God that results in a life of duty-bound service to one's household and people. It is deeply engaged in cultural theology, culture building, institution building, physical realities, land, dirt, earth, all of it. It is manly and it is heroic. Right, if Chalk Knox was here, I'd probably get an amen from this. But listen, this is the kind of godliness that we need in our churches among our men. This is the kind of vision that wakes men up and says, I want to be a part of that. Right? I think men are tired of being a part of the gay, emotionalistic, pietism stuff. And, and as the cultural moment continues to shift, pastors and men, listen, if you can call men to this vision, I promise you men of honor are going to show up. And you're going to raise men of honor. And you're going to call men out of their sin and they're going to repent, and they're going to have a vision. You set before them this vision of piety that we find in Aeneas. right? Read this story in the Aeneid. It moves you to tears. It did me. This is the kind of vision that men need. So last thing I want to do, I'm going to look at why is godly piety good for society. Real quick. Well, as Wiley points out in his book, genuine piety is the basis for establishing godly households which are then God's plan for bringing order and dominion to the entire cosmos. It's this cosmic warfare that's happening through the establishing of homes. Ephesians 5 and 6, they're connected. Right? Spiritual warfare and what goes on in your home, they're connected. Piety sets men about rebuilding in the ruins of a once great culture. It gives them hope about God's purpose and God's promise. It breathes courage and heroic manliness into men who then take up sword and trowel to rebuild their own households, their cultures, and their communities. It calls men to be like Nehemiah, not sitting on their hands, not watching Twitter all day and crying like little snowflakes about, oh, the world is so mean. Go build something. Be a man. Take responsibility. Take a wife. Make babies. Raise those children in a God-fearing community and context that helps send them out as arrows into the world. Build Christian culture, right? This is what excites and empowers men. And by the way, men, this is what makes you attractive to women. When you play video games and sit on your hands and whine and cry about everything and you complain, it's effeminate. It's gay. Women don't like that. But when you have a vision, a mission, and clarity of focus and purpose, and you start taking responsibility and authority starts flowing to you, you become attractive. Right? This is what the world needs. So number one, genuine piety supports heroic masculinity. Right? It's good for women. It's good for children when you have heroic, glad, responsibility-assuming men. It's good for them when an intruder comes into your home and you say, I'm not going to let you kill my wife. I'm sorry. You can eat lead. That is good for women and children. What's bad for women and children is when you say to the intruder, would you like to come and rape and kill my wife, please? That is bad for women. What do we need? Heroic masculinity. That's what we need. You want to see culture transformed? You need to fill men with vision, purpose, clarity, etc. You need to empower them to be the rebuilders and the protectors and the providers of society. You know what I love to see? is when men are getting fired and their wives are supporting them, and those men are filled with courage, and their wives just look at them with respect. They're happy to call their husband Lord because they're acting like men. They're being courageous. They're being bold. This Again, this is what women want. It's good for society. It's good for future generations. So that was number one. Piety supports heroic masculinity. Number two, Genuine piety destroys the selfish, me-first people that, quite frankly, I can't stand. They're bad for the world. And this includes women, right? There's so many 
women who are caught up in this pietism, right? Just as much as the men are, if not worse. And they're intolerable to be around. But what does piety do? It says to these women, like Paul did, it says, you're to serve, honor, love your family. I don't care how you feel about that. A pious woman does it anyway. We all have days where we don't feel like it, but you know what you do? You start doing it. You pray in faith, God, help me. Give me the spirit of God to help me in this task. And you know what happens? Over time, you learn to love it. That's life, right? It reminds me of Bill Belichick, Patriots coach. Longtime Patriots coach always says, listen, our team fundamental motto for everybody is, is really simple. Do your job. You do your job. Right. And, and in many ways, that's what Paul says to the people in the household. Hey, wife, here's your responsibilities. Do your job. Husband, this is what you're supposed to be doing. Do your job. Do it gladly. Be grateful. Kids, do your job. Right. Everybody talks about duty like it's so toxic. John Piper, right? Duty is just so terrible. But here's the reality duty is freedom from your feelings, discipline and duty are freeing. They free you from having to depend on how you feel in the moment. You know, it can actually be a relief to me now, having gone through the the desiring God phase where I say, look, it's my duty. I need to do it. And God will give me the joy as needed. I don't have to feel great about it. I just have to do it. It's my duty. Right? Watch old movies like True Grit. It's my duty. Duty is a glorious thing. We, we need to stop denigrating it. When we don't have duty, people are selfish. Well, you know what? My marriage was hard and I just didn't feel like it anymore. So I just divorced my husband who was perfectly fine. He left me and, right, bad, right? Relying on our feelings all the time is not a good thing. We need to be freed and we can be freed by discipline and duty, right? How you get to great societies, right? Great societies are not built by emotional cupcakes with participation trophies sprinkled on top. They're just not. Think about the greatest generation, right? You don't build a great culture by being an emotional cupcake. That's just not how it works. You get people who are disciplined. They know how to discipline their emotions. They're self-controlled. They understand duty, piety. They love God. They fear God. And so they serve their household and their family with glad hearts. And they go to work and they get the job done. They provide They make lunches for the kids, whatever, right? Piety, household-oriented piety. Number three, and finally, piety is required for culture war, right? If we're going to be fighting, building a culture, having a, a robust, solid culture, we need piety. We need men and women who love their families and their household. They're not ashamed of that. They're not going to listen to the Gospel Coalition when it tells them that don't make an idol of the family. Virtually no one is doing that. Okay. I can tell you the problem in America is not because people make an idol of the family. What we need is piety, geared toward family, building, building culture in Christian community that can unleash people to go fight in the culture war in every sphere. Right? Taking on a dominionist mindset. We're not empathetic. We're not apologetic about being Christians. Piety is for Aeneas gearing up for war. That's what piety is for, and we need it. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. Again, special thanks and shout out to all of our new supporters and patrons. If you're not yet a member, but you feel deeply blessed, benefited, you like the content, you want to see more of it, I would definitely encourage you to go to ericcon.com. You can sign up to become a member. You can also sign up through Patreon. Any one of those two methods, you can sign up. You can support the show. It takes a lot of work. And that money goes a long way to providing sound equipment, editing, all that stuff. Deeply appreciate it. Again, thank you for all the patrons who've been with us since the beginning, been with us a long time. Uh, Deeply appreciate all the support. Uh, Be sure, too, to check out the store at ericcon.com. You can get pint glasses, t-shirts as well, Hardman t-shirt. Got a couple of those that I'm wearing, and uh, I love them. Pint glass, of course, is a personal favorite. Keep it in the freezer, have a frosty libation, and uh, whatever, you, whatever you take is there, right? Some Coors Lattes, some, uh, some higher-end stuff as well, whatever you want to drink in there. 
whatever your game is, that pint glass is going to be a good fit in your repertoire. So I'd encourage you to check that out. If you haven't yet, I would encourage you to go over to iTunes. We've been getting a lot of new reviews. Much appreciated. By the way, one of my favorite reviews recently, somebody said, you're just pushing too far in a biblical direction, Eric. And uh, I really appreciated that insult, which was actually a compliment. It's going too far in a biblical direction. Well, thank you. So, yeah, definitely appreciate it if you go over to iTunes, leave a positive review, five-star review, leave a comment that definitely helps us grow the show and get out to more and more people through all the algorithms and whatnot. Until next time, men, stay frosty, fight the good fight, act like men.